0: This is Make It
1: Curry. Make It Curry. M. I. P. With Massimilia Matfumo. Mark Thompson.
0: Make It point. Get
1: Woke.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, an ongoing conversation in and around reparations and H.R. 40. It's also important, I think, um, that we think about some of these recent Supreme Court rulings. Uh, And as much as the justices are fascinated with jurisprudence as it has impacted those of us as African-Americans, we should at least be. Uh, It's almost as if, Clarence Thomas has maybe read one or two cases, (laughs) read Scott and Plessy, because he quotes them in every thing. Matter of fact, I'm going to ask my guest about that. Um, She wrote a very interesting piece about the 13th Amendment and how that, that might be used in a renewed argument to restore Roe or the provisions of Roe. She is a professor of law at Howard University, Lisa Crooms Robinson. Professor, how are you?
0: I'm well. How are you this morning?
2: I'm just fine. And we're just reminiscing and, and going over folk that we have known over the years. And she and I obviously have known each other uh, a lot longer than I first recalled. <laughs> I had her a lot younger than me, but she went back so far. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> we, might be, we won't tell anybody about that. For the, for the record, she is younger than me. So we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll <laughs> for her benefit. So let me just ask you something. First of all, Lisa. Um, If if in law school, if you all are teaching a class, let's say, and you're dealing with a, a case or an issue in and around uh, gun law or anything like that. Would you would anybody even suggest their students study Dred Scott? Th- I just want to start there because I'm looking at some of his arguments and trying to figure out he's he, they. it's like a a fetish he seems to have with these cases as if he needs to justify them.
0: Right. I would agree with respect to the way Scott gets used or tends to get used by uh, Justice Thomas and others, but my answer might surprise you. And the answer is absolutely we teach Dred Scott and we definitely teach it at Howard. Um, In part because one, I am perhaps a frustrated historian who ended up in law school. So the constitution in those cases mean very little if you take them out of their historical context. I think it's important to go back to Dred Scott or Scott versus Sanford, right? So that students, my students can understand in constitutional law, one, where we've come from, to what the reconstruction amendments were supposed to do so that then they're in a better position to be able to identify and potentially fight against the continuing badges and incidents of slavery that Scott taught us attached not to status, but attached to race and more specifically to blackness. So the idea that for example, Scott only impacted enslaved people is a fallacy. And the opinion is written so broadly and quite clearly to erase all people of African descent, regardless of their status from the group that might constitute we the people or the citizens of the United States. So I definitely, um, much to my students' chagrin, make them read Scott so that we know where to start. Hence, we have a better way to assess how to move forward.
2: But no, I, I, of course you teach it. I just meant he uses these cases, just like the Plessy and Roe case. And we'll get into that. Their, their application is so tortured. For example, I, I, don't, I don't see you teaching Scott. So we're talking about. Uh, uh, upholding the Second Amendment, he uses Scott. And he says, which is really kind of, you know, I don't think he realized what he was doing. He made the argument that because Judge uh, Roger B. Taney, the the chief justice in the opinion said that African-Americans couldn't be considered citizens because they were, they'd have the right to own guns. He uses that, the chief justice dissing us that sentence to say, see, we all are supposed to have guns because he said if we were citizens, we would have it. I mean, I don't, I don't see you <laughs> applying that logic in your class. That's just, but, but you know what's interesting is that when he's when he said that, obviously, what it also revealed. I don't know how familiar you are with the work of, of Carl T. Bogus, who makes the argument that the original framers of the Second Amendment it wasn't written to prevent um, another war or what have you, it was written so that the colonists could be armed to prevent slave insurrections. And and Taney kind of holds that by saying, well, we can't make them citizens because then they'd have to have guns. So without even realizing it, it's as though Clarence makes the case that Taney was wrong to then make another wrong decision, and that brings us to Roe.
0: Absolutely,
2: right. But I mean, let me, Ro- let, right. Okay, but let me
0: just. I, I just wanted to add, in terms of, I agree with your assessment of Thomas and his um, instrumental and, in some ways, dishonest use of precedent. But I tell my students, you know, you know, you're getting ready to get into a very interesting opinion when. Justice Thomas starts with a quote from Frederick Douglass. That is, you know, and and he he selectively pulls out Frederick Douglass often to justify um, an opinion in a case that is designed to restrict rights rather than expand them. Um, So that's, I don't play poker, right? But that's his tell, right? You know know where it's about to go. If he writes separately, because usually he can't find anyone else to buy his analysis, right? Right. When he writes separately and then sort of lays out, let's say in, um, what's the case? Uh, Parents involved, I want to say, which is one of the more recent K through 12 school integration diversity cases, public school. There, he begins with Douglas. With um, I want to say the Grutter versus University of Michigan, Grutter versus Bollinger case. Also, he begins with Douglas. So he 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 roots himself in Douglas to sort of cloak himself in some sort of legitimacy. And then before you know it, he is writing some sort of analysis that justifies us having fewer rights on the back end of it than we had going into it.
2: And and just like the Dobbs case, Roe was Plessy to them in this argument. Actually, Dobbs is Plessy, isn't it? (laughs) I mean, more so if, if we just if we're saying separate but equal and we know separate is inherently unequal they're arguing that Roe the Roe decision was like Plessy but the fact of the matter is it's the Dobbs case once again that takes women back to an unequal status absolutely women does it not
0: well it does it absolutely does and I think that part of perhaps what many advocates didn't really anticipate or addressed squarely uh, were questions about, okay, if you're going to lean on precedent and claim that a precedent that's been in place, let's say 50 years, is entitled to continue based on what we call in the law, the doctrine of stare decisis, then, I mean, you know, the question is, well, then you realize that the time between Plessy and Brown is longer than the time between Roe and Dobbs. So what are you going to do to, in fact, address that? You can't continue to lean uncritically on precedent and scary decisis and not expect. You, we know that that's where you're going to go. So you've got to get more comfortable with the argument, right, and refute it rather than prepare as if it's not going to be raised and then pray to whomever you pray to that they leave that one on the table and if i don't know if you listen to the oral argument but early on the questions start and they start with well we assume you have no problems with the outcome of brown but if you have no problems with the outcome of brown and brown reflects the court's power to correct prior mistakes. Tell us how Roe is any different.
2: How would you have answered that question?
0: (laughs) One, that the difference is between decisions that correct prior errors that restricted rights, which means that the newer interpretation is expanding rights, and I think I also would have spent more time looking at how precedent ha- and Stereo Decisis have been historically justified to try to thwart this idea that whether something is good or bad precedent should rise or fall solely on the, ju- the justice's view of the quality of the reasoning.
2: I, I don't remember where it was, I should have remembered it um, and written it down. But I, I heard another answer to that question that someone else in legal field gave that, that the difference too is that by uh, the time of Brown, there was evidence, uh, studies, even brought before the, They had the famous doll test. Mm-hmm. There were things where it was shown the negative impact of Plessy, and the shift in society. None such evidence was brought forward, to um, to my knowledge, unless you know otherwise, in this argument to refute Roe. As a matter of fact, um, and I don't hear all the oral arguments. I mean, if anything, probably an argument could have been made that the right to bodily autonomy,
0: Mm-hmm.
2: the right to access to um, safe and legal abortion services actually might have made them more rare. You know, because uh, that's what's happened in, in the other civilized parts of the world that we call third world countries where this is illegal. So, so it, none of that was even the court and the, the, the anti-rope people didn't even bring that forward. They just, we just don't want this. So i I but you you raise a good point, and I think you know we there probably should have been better preparation for the argument. Like I said, I would read that the the argument the preparation was to show that between eighteen ninety six and fifty four there was there was evidence there was study, mm-hmm. there was mm-hmm. evidence to actually hard evidence to prove that separate was inherently unequal. Nothing like that happened here, no. but right. But now, but but your argument, and, and folks, um, this was published at NBCnews.com. The amendment ending slavery could be the key to securing abortion rights. So, uh, Professor, I want to give you the floor and, and have you walk us through that. Fascinating.
0: Okay. So, the way this unfolds is the 13th Amendment, which has in my opinion, been underutilized, granted Congress complete authority to make what's laid out in the first part of the 13th Amendment, the abolition of slavery and involuntary servitude, real, which means that Congress was given absolute and complete legislative power to enact laws to make to abolish slavery and involuntary servitude. If we accept the the fact that being enslaved was not limited to one group or sex or gender or the other, but this is about freeing Black people, then When we look at what are called the badges and incidents of slavery, those things that, in my opinion, were essential to sustaining the institution, then there are some things that we can identify that align with what it is that Roe attempted to protect. So we know that, for example, when the... um, international slave trade was abolished uh, in this country effectively in 1808, that at that point, it's not that slavery ended or that it somehow was diminished. We just shift in terms of the source of the enslaved people that will then fuel the market. You're no longer importing them, you're actually reproducing them within the domestic slave uh, uh, economy, right? So if that's the case, then the ability to control whether you're gonna reproduce, with whom you're gonna reproduce, and what happens to, if you decide to carry a child term, the children you reproduce is embedded into the system of enslavement, and slavery could not have, in fact, continued without that kind of control being exercised over reproductive choices that people should have had, but they didn't have because it was driven by the, the system. So if, if the system required people to be divested of, that basic bodily integrity autonomy. Um, There's also the fact that it, that the law in the United States was in fact different from even the law that we borrow from quite heavily, the law in England, so that the status of children as a general proposition follows the status of the father in the United States. They changed that so that the status of the children followed the status of the mother. So if you were born to an enslaved mother, that enslaved mother passed on that status to their children. Those sorts of things pointed me in the direction of 13 rather than 14, because if we're talking about full and complete freedom as a result of 13, it requires us at the very least to undo the very badges and incidents that were the driving force and absolutely necessary for the institution to uh, uh, um, uh, survive, to, to continue. So a full, what I call gendering of the badges and incidents of slavery means that we're no longer looking at things from a presumptively male point of view of perspective, we put everybody on the table and whatever it takes to get those folks free, that's what Congress has the power to in fact legislate. That's where we start with 13. So if that, it switches what Roe did because Roe by proceeding based on liberty and privacy excluded all but those women who by themselves came to the market with the resources necessary to be able to exercise the right, set out and grow. Poor women, regardless of race, but if we're talking about Mississippi, poor black women in particular, have never actually had the luxury of enjoying the rights laid out in row. The rights were illusory. Um, And especially if you, let's say, were poor enough to um, qualify for Medicaid, that with the Hyde Amendment passed as uh, legislation at the federal level, that banned the use of uh, Medicaid funds. For abortion, so this right has been illusory for uh, folks without those resources for quite some time. So if you start there, right? Okay. that means that we're centering black people in a way that privacy never did. but the real shift then is if you know it's sort of like okay, if you want to to, to lean heavily on the sword of originalism, then, If what it means to be a full person is defined under 13, based on what it is that black people need in order to enjoy the fullness of their personhood stripped of enslavement, then when you get to 14, questions about equality then center personhood as defined by black people which means if in this case, white women are interested in securing their reproductive rights, they're actually bringing an equality argument under 14, asking for all of the things that 13 grants to black women. And you see what I'm saying? Right, so that right now, With the reconstruction amendments, the conversations about equality and citizenship continued to center whiteness, which means that while they might have been in some ways anti-slavery, they were never anti-white supremacy, right? They didn't unseat the white norm, and equality just merely required all of those who had been unequal up to that point to demonstrate their right to be treated equally by approximating the position of white men. This, what I'm working on right now, right, is a way to not just advance an anti-patriarchal reading of the constitution, but it's an anti-white supremacist or white nationalist argument about the constitution that centers black people. And then it means that we're not baking into constitutional notions of equality, the presumption of white maleness as being the norm that we use to determine what you're entitled to if you're uh, 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 fighting for equality and what you might not be entitled to. So it's an entire shift that hopes to get at not just the anti-patriarchal piece of it, but also the white supremacy and white nationalist piece of it.
2: So uh, let me let me try it this way. Uh, You're the professor, I'm the student. I want to play that back in a way and tell me if I have this right. The 13th, well, let me start over again. One of the aspects of enslavement Mm -hmm. was forced pregnancy and the loss of bodily autonomy.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. The 13th Amendment was meant to undo that. Yes. Yes. So if, if I were to simplify what you just said, if that is, if we read the 13th Amendment that way, then any decision, then the 13th Amendment today is applicable to any argument to end forced pregnancy or the loss of bodily autonomy for anyone.
0: For right. black women.
2: For black women. Yes. But but uh, but aren't you also saying that if it's if that's applicable to black women, that doesn't necessarily exclude anybody else?
0: Only when you get to 14.
2: Only when you get to 14. Right. Because
0: 13, in order to include anyone for uh, given our example, right, in order to include other women, you have to rely on an analogy rather than the direct application of the 13th Amendment. So it's so if if you think of it. 13 was designed to move a group of individuals from property status to full personhood.
2: 14
0: then takes those persons and mandates equality. Right Mm -hmm. now, personhood continues to be defined according to a white male norm. This would shift so that if we're able to, for example, get to the badges and incidents of slavery that are gender-specific, so the ones that attach, for example, to women or people who can become pregnant, because that's a much larger conversation, then once you get to the Equal Protection Clause, for example, constitutional equality then requires that persons be treated equally, but through 13, we've shifted who the persons are that we use for the point of comparison.
2: Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Um,
0: so other th- than black women, if those folks want equality, then what they are making is a race claim Right. White women then would say, or women other than black women would say, we want constitutional equality. That constant, what we're trying to get at is what 13 already gives to black women, which means what we want is what black women have.
2: But. But doesn't Dobbs take away from black women in terms of bodily autonomy with 13 gave them.
0: In effect, perhaps, but they, it, there was no 13th Amendment argument made. It was all yeah, 14th yeah, right. inequality.
2: Right, 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 right. Right, so yeah, so I see what you're saying. So if you, if you pick it up where the argument is left on the table, yes, that, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Because that was a 14th Amendment argument. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And then you avoid liberty, right? You avoid all of the problems with what uh, the court um, uh, um, negatively tends to characterize as substantive due process. You don't have to get into any of that. If you come 13 first and then 14 after, but equality under 14 has dislodged whiteness and maleness as the standard bearer for equality.
2: Yeah, that's fascinating. But then back to Clarence, he, I guess his kind of argument would be what I just said. Well, 13, he would probably say, well, 13 black women didn't get nothing and shouldn't have got nothing and we should all go back to slavery. I mean, I'm just saying that's probably... <laughs> <laughs> that would be... <laughs> he write that decision, you know, Lord have mercy. Um, okay, that's that's very interesting. So you put that out there. Have you gotten any any responses to that? Oh, sure. <laughs> I mean, well, first of all, I know you got responses. But I mean, that's a, that's a, that's, that'd be a hell of a thing. I mean, have you gotten any responses in terms of, of, of just, for example, white women and white women legal scholars as to how they might consider that a viable argument?
0: Well, the, the white women I've actually sort of heard from um are pretty much on board right um okay. i have to say that the pushback that i've gotten one is and i think that this is in part because of a general poverty of imagination right i've gotten a i've gotten a fair number of um messages from people who just say it's unrealistic right it's pie in the sky it, this is never going to work and as i hear that one of my um uh mm. one of the people i i i lean on and call on all the time is pauly murray mm-hmm. right and if Pauli murray had listened to people who told her that things couldn't happen then we'd been we'd be in a much different boat with respect to both racial equality and 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 uh, gender equality and being at Howard, it's the kind of thinking that is, in fact, encouraged and consistent with, you know, the way we we do law at Howard. There's another group that I hadn't necessarily expected, but it, I guess it's not surprising. Um, I don't know whether they read the whole thing or if they just read the headline. Who? But there's another group, unfortunately, primarily black men. Um... Who completely disagree and feel that this is an attempt to bootstrap white women's rights on the backs of black people and completely disagree with the use of the 13th Amendment. I I found it to be surprising or fascinating or both.
2: Yeah.
0: (laughs) Um, But I mean,
2: we all don't have to agree, right? But we know that to some extent there's that strain in our community. I've even heard that from certain Black women that this is their issue. But it... I, I, but that's not really true either.
0: It can't be their issue. Listen, if you look at Mississippi's maternal mortality rates...
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Right? And the breakdown in terms of who prior to all of this, is using abortion services available in Mississippi, that's Black people, that's Black women, right? So I think that it is in some ways a bit of perhaps privilege or um, um, some other kind of failure to appreciate that although... Row was litigated to secure rights for a white woman who was a litigant, we can't afford to dismiss reproductive rights and reproductive justice as being a white woman's issue. And here I would lean very heavily on the reproductive justice movement. Sisters have been out in these streets for decades you know, advancing something that takes us beyond Roe. Because the other thing I don't want people to come away from all of this thinking is that it's about Roe. No, Roe has never been enough, right? This is about freedom. I have spent my entire adult life, we, we talked about, uh, you know, doing anti-apartheid work, right? I have spent my entire life Trying to work for freedom, not anti something, but let us imagine what freedom looks like and what are the steps we have to take in order to get there. This is just a continuation of that work. So to right. dismiss this as being a white woman's issue, I think, is really a misunderstanding of what exactly is on the table and the work that black women have been doing at the grassroots level for such a long time. This is not the time to dismiss their work. This is the time to figure out how to support their work, lift them up and help to move the entire conversation in the space of reproductive justice so that it's not abortion as a one-off but abortion as part of the full complement of rights that are necessary for reproductive justice, which is not just about what happens when, for someone who decides to uh, um, carry a child to term, what happens in the womb, but we also have to look at education. We have to look at uh, whether there should be paid parental leave. Uh, whether um you know nutrition um, just taking care of that child and that family within a healthy context that's designed to let them thrive and live.
2: No, very well said. Uh, um, and he, dude has been Uncle Tom has been very candid about wanting to do away with contraception. So it's all of these things. Absolutely, uh, and 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 my counter argument. See again, it, as as I'm sure you'll agree, there's several movements that we're not the face of, but we are disproportionately affected. Climate change, environmental mm-hmm. justice, you know. So do we concede this as white persons' movement? No, we shouldn't. Right. Um, you know, when it comes to a number of of movements um, um, uh, like that, and uh, and and this is just another. I mean, the feminist movement overall. Um, that was one of the, the big, you know, things about the women's march and and how that ended up going through some of the things it went through because the feminist movement had been so led and so characterized with whiteness and white white womanhood. Bodily autonomy, this is my argument, even as a man,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and feel free to critique. Black women are have to be centered in this and are centered. <laughs> Because the root of not having bodily autonomy, the root of not having bodily freedom and autonomy, the root of that begins with the black woman's experience being enslaved. Now, obviously an argument could also be made about indigenous women too I mean mm-hmm. I, you know but but that if we're going to talk about bodily autonomy and not talk about it in isolation. And, and I think any white women are lazy if they only see this as one thing. This is only one thing, abortion. And right. most don't when they really get into it. Maybe a couple of them do. But if we're gonna talk about bodily autonomy and, and, and men making decisions about children and how they're born, how they're conceived, what their status is, when they're brought to term, all of that, rather than women making those decisions, that has its root, its roots in our experience and the black women's experience. Absolutely. So to Absolutely. me, that just that's the end of it. And and they need to come sit down and talk to black women like you and those who were pioneers in this movement to figure out um, uh, the answers to this. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: but I think that the other thing that we can't lose sight of, right, because the, the the law as an institution doesn't operate in isolation, nor do different parts of the law necessarily operate in isolation. So. If we play this out, you know, post jobs, folks can't get the health care that they want. They can't make the choices that they would prefer to make. You carry a child to term, then what happens once the child is born, given the nature of surveillance and the carceral state, when in Uh, let's say, South Carolina or Mississippi, then you've got child support that if you don't pay, you find yourself caught up in and can be caught up in. uh, uh, It's almost like being on a hamster wheel, right? You You get behind on your child support. A warrant is sworn out. You get picked up and then let's say you've got a hearing, you spend some time incarcerated. While you are incarcerated, they're not tolling the, the child support requirement, which means that you continue to uh, accumulate money due to this child who is according to whatever means they're gonna use to um, 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 prove that. Yours, which means You know, folks, I think, need to back up and consider all of the things that will potentially be impacted by this. So it's not just Black women who are necessarily um, imperiled. It's, well, what happens once the Black woman or the person gives birth to the child? And then we know that, let's say, that they are on TANF, right? They're on uh, Welfare. Well, we know that the welfare system is often about trying to force mothers to identify the fathers of their children for the purposes of relieving the state of any obligation to support that mother and their child and passing that on to the putative father. Well, now we've got not only the woman being Um, having her constitutional rights violated but you've opened up yet another avenue by which the non-custodial parent involved runs the risk of getting caught up in the criminal legal system which means it's another road to feeding mass incarceration
2: yeah yeah that, that that's a that's a keen observation as well our professor's piece, Lisa Crooms Robinson, the amendment ending slavery could be the key to securing abortion rights. Certainly this fight is not over. She is centering African-American women. Um, this would change the dynamic and change the approach. Um, and really to me, it's a very plausible uh, argument. And we will see where This goes. We have to have you back to talk a little bit more about the 13th Amendment, too. But uh, no problem. um, She's at our esteemed University, Howard University School of Law, which birthed the approach to this type of approach to these arguments, hence Brown v. Board. Uh, And that legacy continues through our guest and the work she does and what she is imparting the knowledge she is imparting to our young law students and we thank her. Thank you Lisa Kroon Robinson. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. As always perform an act of kindness on behalf of an elder or young person write a letter to a sister brother who just so happens to find her or himself incarcerated, offer libations to the ancestors upon whose sturdy shoulders we all now stand and above all.